so you're joining us in the midst of our series in 2 Timothy. Uh, probably the last of the letters that Timothy wrote, or excuse me, Paul wrote, um, writing to his disciple Timothy in Ephesus. And uh, we're picking up in the middle of chapter 3. And it's important to remember uh, that as we go, we're looking at smaller chunks, yet the theme and the tone of the, ch- of the chapter continues. This is still in the tone of verse 1 of chapter 3. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. This is a certainty. This is an expectation. It's still in the vein of last week. Verse 12, indeed all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Uh, Ministry and the Christian life in general is filled with difficulty. And Paul is telling Timothy, don't forget this as you continue on. But also don't forget in your pastoral charge to remember your childhood. Don't forget the comforting reminder of the faithful home that you grew up in. Because what you have heard and what you continue in, that will keep you going in ministry. And so this morning, we're going to look at the parallel between parenting and pastoring. There are many similarities. They are very much the same discipline with the same end. In both, you are stewarding what God has given to you. In both, you are tasked for a time with people who do not belong to you, who God has given to you, who God will do with and see and um, work out in them as he pleases. You are to be stewards of the children in your homes, those who sit in your churches. And so um, the most important task that is given to parents and pastors, is that they know the one God and Jesus Christ whom he sent to save them from their sins. The most important tool that both parents and pastors have is the unchanging, all-sufficient word of God. This is exactly what difficult children and difficult church members need. And so very much, there's a lot of patience for parents and pastors. There's a lot of diligence and intentionality required in both. And so what I want us to see this morning is that every objective, every objective needs tasks and tools. So objective, you want a nice lawn? The task, you got to mow it. The tool, you need a lawnmower. You want nice teeth? Task, brush them. Tool, use a brush. You can go on and on and on. Feed my belly. I need to cook, I need food, I need, I need tools, things like that. So often, it's not that simple that there's one objective, one task, one tool. But for the Christian life, for the church age, for us this morning, for the body of Christ, there is one objective, there is one task, there is one tool. This will be up on the screen. There is one objective for the entire church age, maturity in Christ. There is one task for the church, Make disciples. Now this obviously has many different facets. But this is to be our singular aim. And there is one tool for the entire church throughout all the ages. The infallible word of God. One objective, maturity in Christ. One task, make disciples. One tool, the scriptures. We're going to 
see this played out throughout our text this morning. So how do we carry this out? We also have to bring in the theme from last week, the imitation that Timothy had with Paul. Timothy observed Paul's teaching, his conduct, his aim in life. Paul told him, follow me as I follow Christ. We also read from Philippians 3.17. Philippians 3.17 says, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. This is the same with pastors and parents. Follow Christ, imitate him. Because there are people who are looking up to you, figuratively and literally. Parents, in your homes, there are little people who are watching you. Watching what you say, watching how you respond, watching how you speak to your spouse. Watching how you pray, if you pray at all. Watching how you treat outsiders. The same thing happens in the church. This is a sobering reminder for a pastor. Because though I am just like you and Jesse is just like you, what we say and what we do carries more weight. And we have to realize that you are looking to us as an example and we should take that to heart and take that seriously. So Timothy, remember. Remember your example. Remember what you grew up with because now you are that example. Timothy, your task is now to be a spiritual father. And in this, this is nothing new. We're doing exactly what our Savior did. I remember I told you we would reference John 17 again. John 17 that we looked at last week is going to set us up again this week. I want you to see on the final night that Jesus has with his disciples, what does he find so important to end with? What is the heart of his prayer When he goes before his father in heaven, what does he pray for? How does he set it up? How how should his church in this church age, from the time that he leaves in his ascension to the time that that, that he comes back, what does he hope for? What does he desire for his church? Let's pick up in verse 13. But I am coming, but now I'm coming to you. Jesus is saying, I'm going, I'm coming to you, Father. And these things I speak in the world. The very word of God, the word made flesh is is speaking. That they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. The word of God should be a a joy because it shows us Christ as we just sang. I have given them your word. The father sent the son. The son gave the word to us. And the world has hated them because they're not of the world just as I am not of the world. He told us at the end of chapter 16, you're going to have difficulty in this world. You will have trials, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And he says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, Father, but that you keep them from the evil one. We're here because God has a purpose for us. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. That is the beauty of being united with Christ. Is that we belong to him now. We do not belong to the world. And while we're here, remember I said, what's what's the objective? It is maturity in Christ. We're united with him. We're to be sanctified. Verse 17, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. It is the word of God. 
that sanctifies us, that consecrates us, that sets us more and more apart from the world and unto the service of Christ. And now as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself. I go to the cross that I might take their sin and they might take righteousness, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Christ's whole concern in the last night of his life on earth before the resurrection is the preparation of the church, the sanctification, the setting apart of his servants for the goal. Here's the goal, verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. You know why we're still here? Because there are still those out there who have not believed. Just like the son came for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now the gospel is for the lost sheep of all the nations of all the world. And there will be those who believe through our words. And the more sanctified we are, the more set apart we are according to the word, the more his word will flow from our lips. And we will, see, we will see people repent and believe and glorify God for their salvation. Verse 21. What, what happens from this, this belief, this conversion, this maturity? They may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. This is the rhythm of the church age. The Father sent the Son. The Son sets apart the church. The church tells of their great salvation. The church comes together in unity, speaking the word to the world. And the world responds and sees the unity and the love and the grace of God and the people of God. And they believe because our God saves sinners. Our God sanctifies. Our God turns ugly, wretched, filthy, blaspheming, wicked people into loving, unified, gracious saints. Only our God can do that. That brings God glory. Verse 22, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. The unity in the church and among believers points us to the unity of our triune God. So keep that in mind as we read our passage this morning. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Uh, I'm going to read last week's as well, 10 through 17, uh, because these are... Uh, these are two parts of really the same idea. Begin in verse 10. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim of life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, 
for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, would you be glorified at our time together this morning? Would you be glorified in our prayers, in our songs? Would you be glorified in our fellowship and our conversation? Would you be glorified in the preaching of your word? Lord, would your spirit speak through a weak and unworthy servant? Would you forgive my sins because they are many? May my, may my weakness and frailty not be a distraction, but may Christ our Savior receive all the glory. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Verse 14, so I told you these are uh, two halves of the same idea. Verse 14 begins exactly the way verse 10 does in the Greek. And you, and you. There's a connection with verse 10. Paul is continuing the contrast. Verse 10, you, however, have followed. Verse 14, but as for you, continue. Here's what you do. The wicked are going to go from bad to evil. You, however, to remain steadfast. As you were as a child, continue on. And he says here, but as for you, continue in what you have learned. Uh, this word for continue can also be translated abide. It isn't just keep doing, but remain in. Be associated with Paul, or uh, John uses the same word in a similar way in 1 John 2.24. We have it. First John two twenty four, where John says, "Let what you have heard from the beginning abide in you." Same word. If what you have heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. So, as, as you have learned, as you continue in what you have learned. Um, this, this word here is, is fascinating. The same root for learned here is the one for disciple. This is the, the, the verb to learn here could also be used as to be a disciple. So this idea that your learning, your uh, discipleship, if you continue in it, what makes disciples also makes disciple makers. We're learners. We're constantly being transformed and conformed to the image of Christ. Our minds are renewed, and when we learn and follow after Christ, others learn and follow after us. So he tells Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. Timothy has received it in faith. And in the church, you must firmly believe before you can lead anyone else. How can someone trust you if you don't trust the Lord yourself? How can you lead them to one you don't know and one you don't trust? This is what makes Timothy qualified for ministry. We looked at Timothy earlier. Timothy's young. He's got a lot of physical infirmities. He's not the most confident guy, but you know what makes Timothy qualified for ministry? He firmly believes that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He firmly believes that Christ has risen again from the dead for the forgiveness of sins and life everlasting. 
He firmly believes that he is coming again to usher us into his kingdom for eternity. And he firmly believes that Christ and his word is what his people need to hear. That's what qualifies him for ministry. But that didn't originate with him. Timothy has this beautiful pedigree. Paul begins a little closer to home with himself. But as for you, continue in what you have heard and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. I think on first read, we can think that this is all about his childhood, but Paul has two different phrases here. What you have learned and believed, um, Paul's talking about kind of his graduate school education with Paul here, and then we'll get to the, the next phrase in the next verse, but he's talking about Paul himself. Remember what you learned. I taught you. Remember where I got it. I got it from, from Christ. Um, Peter talks similarly about Paul's example and instruction in 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 14. Remember I told you the objective in the church age is maturity in Christ. This is what Peter says here. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, meaning the end of this age, we're going to, ladies, here's a plug for uh, afterward. We're going to talk about this in the eschatology class. What does the end of the age look like? What does the day of consummation look like? Since you're waiting for this, uh, since it hasn't happened yet, we're still waiting. Be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish. Same language of maturity that Paul uses in Colossians 1. And at peace. And count, patient, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him. The Lord entrusted Paul with wisdom. As he does in all his letters which he speaks to them of these matters. Now, most of us can identify with this. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction. It's not always easy to understand Paul. But this is the, last, this is the phrase I want you to get. As they do the other scriptures. So already, the apostle Peter sees the words of Paul as inspired scripture. And so Peter gives Paul the inspired authority to teach the churches. Paul is reminding Timothy. So there is revelation, special revelation from God given to the apostles. I am one of them. That's the first half. Now the second half. And verse 15, how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings. Now before we get to the sacred writings, I want to talk about Timothy's childhood. This is good to bring back. Chapter 1 of 2 Timothy, verse 5. This is such a a sweet encouragement to Timothy. 2 Timothy 1.5. Paul says, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. Think about the amazing testimony of just a faithful grandma and a faithful mom. Jewish mom, Gentile father, Raising scriptures. Timothy had the foundation. The framework was laid by his grandmother and his mother. So when he meets Paul, now he's ready to receive his extended education. And what did they raise him in? They raised him in the sacred writings. These are, Paul is part of the New Testament revelation. The sacred writings are the Old Testament revelation that are already established. 
And Paul is adding them and connecting them with the New Testament revelation as which he is a part, which is still being revealed. And so here's our first section. Parents, your job is to be Lois's and Eunice's in your child's life. This is your primary task. This is why we read from Deuteronomy 6 earlier, and I want to read it again. Because a passage that tells you to speak of Scripture when you rise, when you go to bed, write it on, on your uh, doorpost, should probably make sure that you're actually listening when we say it. So picking up in verse 5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Remember Timothy, which you have firmly believed. And these words that I command to you shall be in your heart. Parents, first and foremost, your hearts must be devoted to the Lord. You must believe in him. You must love him with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. But it does not end with you. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down and when you rise. This should be the rhythm of our lives. The word of God should so be in us that it can't help but flow out of us. Jesus told us, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Does the word of God flow out of our heart and out of our lips? Is that evident to your children? You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets for your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Parents, this is your homework this week. Is the word of God part of regular conversation with your children? If you forget, write it on your doorpost with crayon if you have to. To remember that there are little ones who are watching you. There are little ones who need to be reminded of the love of God and the grace and mercy of God. Because we don't want them to see the justice and the wrath of God. Proverbs 22.6, most of you know this. It says, train your child up in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Timothy is a great example of this. So, moms, you don't have to be a theologian. You don't have to have every systematic theology memorized. You have to have firm faith. You can be, uh, one of my favorite things in seminary is usually often neglected, practical theology. What does our theology mean for our life? Moms, just by being faithful, just by trusting in the word, just by trusting in the Lord, you can be a Lois and a Eunice in your child's life. My Hebrew professor used to love the phrase Jewish mothers. Um, he studied un under rabbis, so he had this uh, picture of, of how the Jews would train their uh, children. Hebrew mothers would walk around the house as they are cleaning. They are singing scripture. They're putting it to tunes. They are dancing with, with their, their, their children. In an oral culture where you couldn't open, you don't realize how rare it is that in every one of our houses we have bookshelves. Books are not common in most of the world and really throughout most of history. But they had the word of God on their lips. They would put it to tunes and they would sing and they would, they would make it a joyful time. And so their children were steeped into it. So my Hebrew professor would say, Jewish mothers say, Jewish mothers say, they would again and again know how to teach and train children, simply and repetitively tell them truths in simple ways that they can understand. 
Because all we're doing, remember, Jesus said, you must come to me like a child. Sometimes we can overcomplicate things. Some of the simplest truths that children hear um, are what they need to hear. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. We're encouraging children to have faith that is appropriate for, for children. Let them know the love of God. Let them know the sacrifice of Christ. Let them know the beauty of life everlasting. Point them to Christ. Fathers, same way. You are to teach and lead in your home. You are to set this example. The responsibility is given to men to lead homes, lead our children in fear. Not that they would be beaten down by an authoritarian, but that they may see the strong male love of God and see that worked out in the home. Ephesians 6, 4, where Paul tells the church, and that's the same church he's writing to with Timothy. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. We'll look at that in just a moment because the word of God is what we use for discipline and instruction. You need the word and the rod, but the primary tool is the word of God. And so don't provoke your your children to anger. This should not be a punishment that we're in the word of God and we're singing and we're praying. This is our joy. This is our life. This is who we are. This is what Christ has purchased for us. Uh, And then um, next. So these spiritual parents are the same in the home and in ministry. Just to kind of wrap up this idea, um, I've used this before, but I love this passage, 1 Thessalonians 2. Paul talks about his ministerial heart, and a pastor must have the heart of a mother and the heart of a father. Here's how how closely parenting and pastoring parallel one another. Uh, This is 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 6. Uh, I'm going to begin in verse 7. But we were gentle among you like, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward all of you. Again, maturity in Christ. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted challenged, encouraged, and, excuse me, and encourage you and charge you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Again, parents and pastors, I think you got that. So this is a great time to plug our parenting class. Um, I'm going to encourage, and you may be getting a tap on the shoulder from one of the pastors, um, for you young parents and young families, take advantage of this. Uh, Michael and Wendy Holland, who are celebrating their anniversary this week, will be back. Um, there's an interest meeting after service, and um, we are going to provide childcare for you. We're going to remove every hindrance from you doing this. But uh, they're going to be going through Ted Tripp's book, Shepherding a Child's Heart. There's so much wise instruction and discipline in a book like this. And so um, this is good. This is good timing to, to plug this. I hope you're there next week and take it, advantage of this. Um, because sometimes, and let's be honest, um, there's a different generational parenting style now. Sometimes in, in houses, you can't tell who's in charge. 
And parents, if you're wondering who's in charge, you or, or, or the children, this class is probably for you. Because the one who wears the diapers should not also wear the pants. That's all I'm going to say about that. So, why is being raised in Scripture so important? The second half of verse 15 here. And how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings. Why? Why was Timothy acquainted with the sacred writings? Why is Paul reminding him? which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. This is the heart of the whole issue. This is the, this is the, the theological center of our passage. The training of the parents are leading up to this. The exhortation to continue in the word is coming out of this. Both children and churches need to trust in Christ for salvation. This is why we're in the word. The word of God is wisdom, not just contemporary wisdom, not just a manual of morality. But the Old Testament scriptures, the New Testament scriptures, they are the good deposit. They are profitable for faith in Jesus Christ. They are filled with eternal riches. Timothy, this is what you draw on. This is the deposit you make because it brings dividends and it continues to carry on. It is wise. It will make you wise for salvation, through faith, just like Timothy had to firmly believe. If you want to firmly believe, continue in the scriptures. You want your children to firmly believe, continue in the scriptures. Because our faith is in Jesus Christ. This is the, the heart, the aim of all of the scriptures, that we see Christ and we see him crucified. The Old Testament shows us how he fulfills the promises and shadows the final king, priest, prophet. How his sacrifice does away with animal sacrifices and him being the new temple makes his dwelling among us no need for a temple anymore. He is the holy of holies. He is the high priest who entered in for a final time for the final sacrifice, the atonement for sins. He is the one that David sang about. He is the one that Isaiah saw. He is the one that Adam should have been. He is the son of Abraham. And I could go on and on and on and on. That is why the scriptures are wise toward salvation. In the New Testament, we get his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. We get reminded of his rule and his eternal kingdom and the objective that he has for us in this world. So when people ask you, I love when skeptics like to say, well, the Bible doesn't address this. The Bible. Why doesn't the Bible talk about world history? Why doesn't the Bible talk about mathematics and in, in, in science? Why doesn't the Bible have this and this? Because you don't need it for faith in Christ. The scripture's sole purpose is that you would see Jesus Christ and trust him for eternal life. And so if it's not there, we don't need it for that purpose. Not that it's not helpful in other ways. But it has nothing to do with salvation. We read the scriptures to know and trust him. That's why now, in this second section, he says all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. All scripture. Let's start there. Timothy, your pastoral aim, your charge, your responsibility is to rightly divide the Old Testament sacred writings and the New Testament writings of the apostles. Timothy, this is your tool for your task. We believe in verbal plenary inspiration. What does that mean? Three words. Verbal, 
spoken. Plenary, all of it. Inspiration is from the mind of God. It is inspired by God himself. All of it is breathed out by God for the purposes of God. So um, Peter deals with this a little bit in 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1, uh, verses 16 through 21. He's talking about um, the gospel that was given to them and what they wrote and what they passed on. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So our scriptures are not man-made myths. The New Testament scriptures are from eyewitnesses. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father... And the voice of the majesty was born to a voice uh, was born to him by the majesty on high. This is my beloved son, obviously talking about Christ, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain, and we have the prophetic word more more fully confirmed. This is confirming everything that the prophets who came before them, that the Old Testament scriptures look forward to. This is the substance with which the, uh, to which the shadow points, to which you will do well to pay attention. When he speaks of scripture here, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, this is the word of God for the people of God. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. He is speaking to a word that brings to new life, the voice of the Savior that the, sh- that the sheep hear and they respond to. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is verbal plenary inspiration. Men carried along the, the Spirit of God working through the pen of man. So when you ask the question, who wrote 2 Timothy? Who wrote 2 Peter? Paul and the Holy Spirit, Peter and the Holy Spirit. We're not robots. He actually uses these men's personality and these men's experiences. But they are driven by and inspired by and solidified by the work of the Holy Spirit. So if it's not, if we do not, believe that all scripture is inspired, if we do not believe that all scripture is authoritative, if all scripture is not to be trusted and we can pick and choose like like we would at a sketchy buffet, like that looks good, that doesn't look good, then what does it say? Then what do we trust? Where do we stop? This is what our modern world wants to do. I like this type of Jesus, the the, uh, Thomas Jefferson Jesus doesn't have any divine claim of authority on my life. Just tells me to good, do good things and be a good moral person. This is not like picking the peas off of your plate because they, they don't look good. You can eat the rest. This is like taking a, a parachute that your life is in. And I'm going to pull a few threads out because I don't like those, those threads in my parachute. And expect it to still have integrity. Either God inspired all of it or God inspired none of it. So all scripture is breathed out by God. When we speak, we as humans, we, we, we breathe, our words have meaning. 
Proverbs tells us that life and death is in the power of the tongue. We can build others up or we can tear them down. If we have that kind of power when we breathe and we speak, imagine how much power it is when God speaks. When God breathes, the word for breathe here, the same root as the word for spirit. When Peter says they are carried along by the Holy Spirit, the scriptures are literally spirited out through the writers. And then it becomes God's word because it originates with God himself. This is why it is living and it is active because our God is alive. This is why it does not err because our God does not make mistakes. This is why it is infallible because our God does not fail. That's also why it is profitable because our God is rich and he gives us the riches of his wisdom and the blessings that we have in Christ through his word. It is useful. It is beneficial. This pays dividends. This is the most valuable thing you have, Timothy. You've been entrusted with it. We looked at it all through this letter. This is the good deposit. This is all inspired. It is all to be studied. It is all to be learned from, and it is all to be applied to our lives. Timothy, because the world's getting wicked. The world's been wicked, but I don't change. My word doesn't change. Heaven and earth will pass away, but not my word. That is why you hold on to it, because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The word himself has entrusted it to you. So that's why Paul can say that all scripture is breathed out for God and, and profitable for all these things. So we, we, we've got two couplets here, a pair of doctrinal prophet, P-R-O-F-I-T, um, and a pair of behavioral prophet, being profitable. So first, teaching and reproof. This is for instruction and refutation, meaning for doctrine. We tell what is right, we expose what is wrong. Because anytime there is a teaching of truth, there will always be the refutation of error. This is what Paul's been doing all along. This is the truth, Timothy, because that's what's out there. This is what you hold to because here's what the lies are. Every time we turn on the light, the darkness is exposed. Teaching and refutation. We contrast what is true with what is false. We hold up high what is good for instruction, what is good for teaching. And we shine a bright light on what is error and what deceives and what distorts. So it's good for our, our, our doctrinal profitability. It's also good on the other side of the same coin for our behavioral profitability for correction and training. So, correction. Sometimes you need a correction, just like your children need correction. Sometimes they need it verbally, sometimes they need it physically. But the word of God is discipline. It is correction. And once they're corrected, once the error is exposed, then through instruction, you build them up. This is no different than the muscles in our body. If we want to build muscles, what, what, what must we do? We must put an exertion upon them. We must break them down, tear them apart, so that they may be built back stronger. This is what the Word of God does to us. Every time we open the Word of God, every time I preach the Word of God, my desire is to expose the wickedness of your heart, 
to open up what needs to be corrected by God and then to be built up and trained up by the word of God so that we are all growing in maturity together. This correction and training. What braces and uh, you know those inliner things do to teeth, Scripture does to saints. It takes correction and training them to be lined up. I have those uh, liner things, and every week I have to put in a new tray, and it, and it hurts because it's forcing your, your teeth into a different direction. And so for the first couple of days, it's very painful. Like I can't eat chips and stuff like that because it, it, it just any pressure on it hurts. But what happens over a few days is those teeth begin to be, they are corrected. It's painful. Discipline's painful for a moment. But they are trained to be straight. They are trained in which way they should go. In fact, the word for correction um, has ortho in it, where we get orthodoxy to straighten out, and we get orthodontics to straighten out your, your teeth. So here's the idea to make crooked what is straight. It's a behavioral correction. And this uh, training, the pedea, is a, um, it's a word for a schoolmaster. The one who would be in the home who was hired by the uh, parents to bring their children up. To teach them not just information, but also behavior. And so, just like those liners, this correction, this training, is daily incremental adjustments. This is what the Word of God is. Why do we need to be in the Word of God every day? Because every day we are being corrected, we are being straightened out, we are being rebuked, we are being transformed, we are being built back up according to the image of God, according to the mind of Christ. And all this teaching, all this reproving, all this correction, all this training is done in righteousness. Why? Because the word of God makes you wise unto salvation through faith in Christ. And through faith in Christ, you now have his righteousness. So when you read the word of God as the people of God, transformed by the grace of God, you have the righteousness of Christ. And all of this is conforming you into the image of the one who bought you and gave you his name. Praise the Lord indeed. So then that brings us to the purpose of our text. Verse 17, that. What's all this for? We've got the task, we've got the tool. What is the objective? The man of God may be complete. That's the goal. That is what we're working for. That's what the, the scriptures are there for. The man of God is a title that was applied to David and to Moses and to Elijah. Basically, it's reserved for God's faithful servants. But right now, anyone who has the righteousness of Christ, anyone through faith is a man of God, a woman of God, if you will. If you belong to him, now serve him. And so if we're training up men of God, what type of men and women do we want to raise in our homes and in our churches? Those who are complete, equipped for every good work. We don't get this in the English, but Paul's doing a little play, or play on words here. Complete is the adjective, and equipped is the verb of the same form. Basically, Paul's saying, you are to be qualified qualifieds, accomplished accomplishments, suited for the goal. Suited to be suited. Why? The way this is written in the original is that because you are suited, 
because you are complete in Christ, because you have been equipped, that equipping continues. The one who called you and completed you in Christ, the already is making you more complete and more fit for his service in the not yet. This is the nature of the Christian life. Remember back for um, in verse 20 and 21, the honorable vessel. The honorable vessel has been equipped, qualified from the master who set him apart. And as the master cleans, or the, the, the servant cleanses himself, he becomes more qualified by the word. Let's look back at verse 20 of chapter 2. Now, in a great house, remember we're talking about the, the, the visible church here. There are not only vessels of gold and silver, the honorable ones, but also wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable use. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house for what? Ready for every good work. Remember the analogy of the silver? Silver is always silver, but silver can be tarnished. Silver gets ugly. What do we need? Silver needs to be polished, needs to be cleaned. And so this is what the word of God does. It takes scuffed up, tarnished silver vessels and exposes what needs to be cleansed and what needs to be polished and what needs to be prepared. It tells those servants, those vessels, you are you were created and recreated in Christ to shine, to be ready for service. This is the objective, and my word does this. Because I'm preparing you for every good work, everything that is honorable and pleasing to me. That's why I worked in you. Because apart from me, you can't do anything good. But in me, I'm preparing you for every good work. So bringing this all together, all scripture makes the entire man complete for all good works. So I want you to think about this for a moment. It's a strong statement, but I want to say it. We don't need anything else to be a godly man. We don't need anything else but the word of God to be a godly man. Not that other knowledge and other information or other education is not useful for other things. But general revelation or education cannot make you wise unto salvation. General revelation the knowledge of, of, of God and the practical wisdom that God has given to pagans and believers alike. And education cannot make you wise unto salvation. Only the revealed word of God can. And so, before we get into our application here, do we believe this? Do we really believe that? Do our lives and our priorities show it? Do we treat the word of God like this is what makes me good and useful for every good work. This is what makes me trained in, in, in righteousness. This is how I know what it means to be complete and mature in Christ. Or is this one out of many of my influences? Is it on the shelf over there that I, I use as kind of a troubleshooting manual for when something goes wrong, let's see what God's word has to say about it? Or do we begin there? And again, I'm not telling you that no other information is helpful and, and beneficial. But nothing else can make you wise unto salvation. This is why we spend so much time in Scripture here. This is why it is part of our DNA. This is why it is the backbone of our philosophy of ministry. Because otherwise, 
we begin proof texting our own ideas. We say, this is what I would like to do. This is what I would like to see done. And let me just see if I can find one verse of scripture or half a verse of scripture out of context to support it. This is the all-sufficient, inerrant, infallible word of God. It drives us. It is our authority. Because for humans, let's be honest, we're always tempted. It's so easy to just add a little bit of what sounds good, what I want to hear, to take a little bit of what makes me uncomfortable. And the common pressure of adapting it or twisting it to make the world like us or make it sound like something that would be more palatable to outsiders. This is the word of God that God has spoken. He does not change. He is not influenced by the, influenced by the whims of man, and we have to examine ourselves when we are, when we want to try to fit and distort Scripture into what the world thinks it should be. It's so sad how often I see Christian workshops and conferences that love the latest trends and data and schemes, and then they just tack on a couple of proof texts. When people come up to me and are like, you know, Pew said, or Barna said, or did you read this study, did you read that? I don't care. What? I don't care. I'm not looking to trends and um, cultural directions because I know God has not changed. The condition of man has not changed. The need of man has not changed, and his word has not changed. So my marching orders have not changed. But I know so many pastors are always trying to get on to the next thing, and so many Christians are like, what's this trend? Why is this happening? Why are these things happening? Because we're sinners, and Christ has not returned yet. What are we to do? Make disciples. What is our tool? The word of God. What's the objective? To see them mature in Christ. We must trust to breathe that word of God because our, word, our world breathes out a lot. Our world incessantly is talking to us. Our world speaks authoritatively. You must do this. You must believe this. It is incessant. But brothers and sisters, we must have ears to hear. We must know and hear the word of God. So, um, practically, uh, this passage shows us the when, where, what, who, how, and why of faithful stewards and servants of Christ. Um, Shri helped me with this yesterday. Oh, we couldn't get it all on one slide? All right. Um, you can leave it up there for a little bit. We'll go through them. So the when, the last days, from the ascension of Christ and the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost to the return of Christ. This applies in that entire time. Where? In home and in the church. Basically all of our lives. What? The, the instruction in the scriptures. The who? From those who taught us to those we teach. The how, we begin and continue to use the scriptures for faith in Christ. Why? That we may be complete, equipped for every good work. This is the Christian life summed up in this passage. So again, the when, the last days, the where, in the home and in the church, the what, the instruction in the scriptures, the who, from those who taught us to those we teach, how, begin and continue to use the scriptures for faith in Christ. Why? That we may be complete, equipped for every good work. Let me just leave you with a couple things in our last couple moments here. God has given us his word to help us steward the children and the churches he's given us. He has given us the tool for the task and the objective that he has set before us. 
This is why we're here, brothers and sisters. This is why we're still alive. This is why we're still on earth. So for both parents and pastors, we must trust. And if you're not a parent or a pastor, it still applies to you. We must trust the spirit-breathed word. Because the same spirit that breathed into us new life, breathed life into his word. And that same spirit works in the hearers just as he worked in the writers. There's nothing I will say up here. There's nothing you will say if the Holy Spirit is not working first. We praise God for his work and we petition the Spirit to continue working in us through the scriptures to those who would hear. This is why we gather. Because we know that where the people of God are, the temple of God is, the Spirit of God dwells. This is protection and training for adults and children. This is where the, the flock comes to, be, comes to gather and be reminded of who they are and who set them apart and why they are still on the earth. So Christians, as opposition increases and persecution becomes more common, um, the word of God is going to become more and more essential in our lives. And I'm one of those weird people that pray for difficulty and persecution because the brothers and sisters I know who are facing real persecution and real difficulty, they cling to the word of God because it is all they have. And we need to learn to cling to the word of God because it all they have. Because trust me, when persecution comes, all the theological debates are gone. We need to know Jesus Christ and him crucified. We need to remember the scriptures and simply hide it in our hearts, commit it to memory. Like children, sing it, dance to it. There are so many amazing resources out there where you can get scripture sung and scripture read and all kinds of memorization tools. We have Bibles more than we can count and we take it all for granted. If every other book, heard parents here, um, what a blessing it is for the children in this congregation. It is so encouraging to hear throughout the week what parents do with their children. And the faithful witness of moms who read scripture and pray with their kids. Think about how well our children here are going to be set up. Most of them are hearing scripture in their homes. They are going to either Christian schools or our homeschool. They're getting scripture in their education as the thrust of their education. There are those in children's ministry who love them and who read the scriptures to them and point them to Christ. I love to see the little six, seven-year-old, eight-year-old girls tagging around the the, uh, 20-year-old girls and just hanging on every word and seeing our college students praying with and encouraging the elementary and middle and high school kids. This is the beautiful picture of discipleship within the body, older ones teaching the younger ones. And I am so looking forward to what will come in the future. There will be future Lois's, Eunice's, and Timothy's in this body. There will be those who firmly believe because from who they, they heard it and from childhood they were acquainted with the sacred scriptures. But sadly... I want to leave on this kind of sobering note. Uh, Too many parents neglect their responsibility. Too many parents think that biblical training is optional. Assuming that they will come to Christ eventually. Many parents act like their their, their children will come to belief by osmosis. Well, they, they know what I believe. They don't if you don't tell them. They don't if they don't see it. 
Because if we're honest, it's much easier to be your child's friend rather than it is to take time and be a spiritual example. Because teaching, reproving, correcting, and training, that takes work. That takes intentionality. That takes diligence. And let me just kind of leave this with you. Um, people are not leaving the faith. Children are not leaving the faith because our presentation is not appealing enough. People are leaving the faith because we are leaving the word. I mean we, I mean the church. People are not leaving the church because the, the word is not appealing enough. They're leaving the church because the church has left the word. Brothers and sisters, continue in what you have learned. So I'm going to give you a few moments to prepare your minds, your, your hearts for uh, the Lord's Supper. Uh, reflect on, the, on this text. And if you are in Christ, this should be such an encouragement that he has given us his word because he loves us. He wants us to be, he wants us to be equipped, trained, and encouraged in our salvation.